If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Mopac Audio. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of Lisk Long Island Serial Killer. Before we get started today, I just want to take a minute to let you know kind of what our approach is to covering the case as everyone waits for the next steps in the legal proceedings against alleged Gilgo 4 killer Rex Huberman. Our intention is to responsibly report on what we can and to avoid speculating or sensationalizing, but also trying to reveal aspects of the case we think need to be considered. So sometimes it seems like we're chasing something or digging into mundane topics, but in the absence of concrete information, we simply want to thoughtfully and conscientiously inform the larger conversation around the case. So thanks for going on this journey with us. And of course, thank you again for listening. All that said, today's episode is a conversation that I loved having with two forensic psychologists, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the true crime podcast, LA Not So Confidential. They're both incredibly smart, but also very down to earth and just all around good people. In this first part of our conversation, we spoke about what it means to diagnose someone as a psychopath, a label that gets thrown around a lot. But in actuality, there are a number of factors that go into labeling someone as such. Again, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from LA Not So Confidential were incredibly generous to lend their time and considerable insight. And if you haven't checked out their podcast, go check it out. It really is good. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. So I'm Dr. Shiloh. I'm a forensic psychologist in L.A., but my professional career started as a police officer here in L.A. County. I I was actually looking to 
perhaps get into federal law enforcement. So I went back to obtain my doctorate while I was gathering law enforcement experience, and I found a forensic psychology program here in the Los Angeles area. And very quickly, once we started doing practicums, which are part-time sort of mini internships between before you get into your real internship, I jumped into working primarily with high-risk sex offenders with the parole department out here and really continued in that. I had one year away doing something else in neuropsych, but continued working in the area of sexual offenders exclusively up until 2017, but I did it a little bit part-time until last year in 2022 when I closed my private practice. So that was uh, psychological assessments with sex offenders, groups, individual, and really just working in conjunction with probation and parole in making sure these individuals transition back out to the community, but also assessing risk for future recidivism and sex crimes and also trying to support them in getting back into the community. And then just about a little over six years ago, I made the transition into law enforcement psychology full-time. And I work with a large law enforcement agency here in Southern California where the officers are essentially my clientele. So I do I do clinical work with them. Um, I'll do debriefings after some critical incidents and officer-involved shootings with them, as well as I do a organizational consultation side of my job where I work with commanding officers on how to improve the workplace and improve morale and provide trainings. And then the last little component of that is that I'm part of the crisis negotiation team, which is one of my favorite parts of all of it, even though I might have to get up at three in the morning and head to the far side of Los Angeles. Um, It really is a passion of mine looking at the psychology behind crisis negotiations. And um, that's where Scott and I kind of came back together after doing internships together. And our worlds collided again in 2017. And we decided to start our podcast on forensic psychology. So you're that doctor they see after an incident, like a shooting or something, and they're like, you don't get it. And you can actually say, I was a cop. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually the first psychologist in my unit that's been around for 55 years that has had law enforcement experience of their own. And I was blown away by how much that meant to officers and what a complete game changer it was for them. I was kind of, you know, I wanted to take a back seat. When you're a therapist, a psychologist, it's not about you. It's about your client. And there were some training sessions where I revealed um, what my experience was. And it's it's really broken down a lot of walls, for sure. No, I'm glad you're doing that. I mean, obviously, they need that. And um, to know someone good in there is helping them figure that stuff out. And then going to the those crisis interventions, I could talk about that for a long time. But Dr. Scott, please. Grew up in northern Alabama, came out here a long time ago to Southern California, and I was uh, working in the entertainment industry. And I was in the entertainment industry in various um, roles uh, for close to 20 years. And I was getting to the point where it's like, you know, as we have a saying out here that entertainment is a harsh mistress. And, you know, it's really good when it's really good. And when it's not, it's really, really difficult. And 
Uh, I had been working in a job that I really, really enjoyed, but there were no benefits at all. Like it was all contract gig work between one on one of our hiatuses. Like I just kind of had a come to divinity meeting with myself. Like I, I got to make a decision on what I'm going to do. And my therapist at the time had been pressuring me. He goes, I really think you should look into becoming a therapist. And I'm like, no, I mean, I really pushed back and he had some, he goes like, well, let me just give you the, here are the reasons why I think you should do this. And he had some really good reasons. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go take the intro class. So I went to take an intro class to the master's level of clinical psychology, which out here is called a marriage and family therapist. So it's a, like a two, two and a half year program in, um, in master's level psychology. And I just felt my brain turning on again, uh, in a way that it hadn't in, in quite a while. And I got halfway through the program and I was like, just hungry for more knowledge. So I enrolled in a doctoral program that was a clinical psych doctoral program licensable in the state of California, but it had a forensic emphasis in family forensics. So along with all the clinical training that we get that comes with a doctoral degree, I was also exposed to voir dire, expert testimony, child custody, family evaluations. And it was just fascinating. Like I had, and I had no idea that I'd be interested in that. So I started thinking, well, let me see what forensic placements are out there for internships. And I happened to get an interview at a place uh, in Southern California that was part of a statewide, not franchise, but they're a big company. And it was where Shiloh and I met and our work there was a combination of several things, but primarily it was working with pre and post-incarceration sex offenders, providing one-on-one -on -one therapy and a lot of group therapy. And we had this amazing clinical director. We got a lot of training, like tons and tons of training. And, um, you know, working with that population is not for everybody because you really hear things, some stories that are, that are, are quite disturbing. And, you know, but if you're fascinated by human behavior and the way the psyche develops and evolves, then it's just an incredible field to be in. And Shiloh and I met like our first day. We were both, there were four interns together. The other two were part-time. Shiloh and I were full-time and we were adults. Like I'm a good bit older than Shiloh, but between the four of us, we were sort of the, the mom and dad of the group, I guess, in a way. But we hit it off immediately. I mean, we just had this sensibility and I'm, I'm, I'm goofy and, you know, very jazz hands Hollywood in my past, but, you know, so to think that I would, you know, become really good friends with this cop and her family is kind of remarkable. But we we kind of dove in like really, really quick and we aligned with our clinical director and we just worked nonstop for free <laughs> for free. No, we got we got gas money right for a year. There you go. Which um, and then that led to me getting a job uh, right into the state prison system. And I was there for three years, then went and worked in the largest jail in the U.S., basically doing uh, inmate evaluations and then on to a really remarkable uh, co-responder program where I work with law enforcement detectives. So I go out in the community, I do some crisis negotiation, but the majority of my work is on-site evaluations, court advocacy and trying to prevent things from happening again. Like, so we're, we're trying to slow down the merry-go-round of people going in and out of psychiatric hospitalizations. And usually there's an overlap of 
either criminal thinking or criminal activity, which may or may not be related to mental illness. So yeah, that was, it just turned out to be this amazing job that is incredibly creative. I have wonderful support and colleagues and supervisors and an, an unbelievable autonomy and the opportunity to be dramatic in court. Like, I mean, there's some that probably, you know, I'm dealing with people with severe mental illness, but you'd be surprised. I do more arguing with attorneys than I do with the clients I'm promoting. So what was weird is that Shiloh and I started, you know, almost two decades ago with our friendship. And then here we are all this time later, and we're working with the same law enforcement agency, but in different capacities and like three blocks from each other, I think is your yeah. office. It's like three <laughs> long blocks. Yeah. How great. That is really cool. Um, just those journeys and where they take us. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, like sociopaths, psychopaths, malignant narcissists, and just what's the difference? You know, how do we understand the differences between those? And how do how do you study those? And how do they get labeled like that? It's really fascinating. This is a great place for me to just let your audience know that we're going to be speaking in generalities today, right? I mean, this is an ongoing case. Yeah. Influence it in any way, especially because Scott and I still work in the realm. It's not like we're retired and just can kind of comment on anything, but we have a lot of things that we can speak to considerations for a case of this nature, but not about any specific defendants um, or offenders. For sure. I think your previous episode on psychopathy was spot on. You know, it, it was a, yeah. that criminologist did a great job. Um, so I definitely want people to go back and listen to that. But when we look at psychopathy, I think first and foremost, the biggest misnomer is that it's actually a diagnosis and it is not, it is not something included in the DSM. It's something that always comes up of whether or not we're going to finally include it. But what we have not in its place, but what we have there to capture a lot of it is antisocial personality disorder. It's just if you think of psychopathy is antisocial personality disorder to the nth degree, if you will. So essentially, it's a neuropsychiatric disorder marked by emotional responses, a, a deficit in emotional responses, um, lack of empathy, as well as poor behavioral controls. So it's not just emotionally, but how are these people acting out? And what this commonly results in is persistent antisocial deviance in criminal behavior. And the best research that we have up until now in studying psychopaths, which only account for 1% of the general population. So imagine how difficult it is to identify them and then get them into a lab to study them. But thank goodness it's only 1%. It is. But, you know, I think 1% is, you know, kind of the lowest percent we can give, but it's a lot of people. If, a lot of people. Yeah. If you look at it and you go, okay, well, isn't schizophrenia around 1% of the population as well, Scott? It's a little bit higher. It's up to, up to okay. I mean, uh, that spectrum of psychotic disorders can go up to just under 3%. Okay. Okay. But the best information that we have now is that psychopathy is really a result of a three-legged stool. And two of those are biological in their bases. So one is looking at genetics and genetic markers. So um, I know you just had a DNA expert on. I am not a DNA expert or a geneticist, but essentially what they're looking at, what is prominent with someone who meets a criteria for psychopathy is this idea of the warrior gene, which is known as the MAOA gene. And it controls the production of a protein that breaks down brain signaling um, chemicals like dopamine and serotonin, 
all which influence mood. And then there's the MAOA-L gene that has been linked to aggression and antisocial behavior. So they're able to mark how that is present or not for somebody um, we deem psychopathic. The second area of biology is just looking at brain functioning and brain mapping. So when certain areas of your brain or my brain might light up when we see someone who's struggling or someone in need and kind of that empathetic response lights up, that might not be going on for somebody that is deemed to be a psychopath. So you have two very specific genetic, or I'm sorry, two very specific biological markers. And then the last component into that recipe, which is typically what they find in the histories is some sort of severe childhood trauma. So you can have someone who has the gene, the prominence of the gene, maybe the, um, the brain markers, but maybe they had a great childhood. <laughs> so they're not going to develop into um, psychopathic behaviors like someone else who had unfortunately been the victim themselves to severe childhood trauma. Um, I think it's interesting when you look at breakdowns in population when, you know, we said that psychopaths are present 1% of the general population. But when you start looking at the criminal population, about 20% of men who are in state prison would meet the criteria, about 10% of women. And then when you get into sexual offenders, I'll stick with, with those that offend against adults for our case here, it's about 35% that would meet that criteria. And of all the studies that have been done with those who go on to commit serial murders, 90% of them would meet the criteria for psychopathy. You know, that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store, but did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lisk, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lisk to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash lisk. And so what's the difference between psychopathy and a sociopath? So sociopathy? Did I say that right? Yeah. Well, sociopathy would basically be the term for ASPD, which is, which is antisocial personality disorder. But sociopathy is sort of describing the behaviors rather than a diagnosis. The diagnosis is ASPD, right? That makes so sense. there's, it's like Dr. Shada was saying is that it's sociopathy to the nth degree becomes psychopathy. I see. I see. And then, you know, I, I studied a little bit about how they, how they determine this, you know, the, the, the scale and the test. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? If that's what you guys still 
it seems like what people, Dr. Hare, is that correct? Yes, Dr. Robert yeah, Hare. Yeah, Hare Psychopathy. Right. He he designed the Hare Psychopathy checklist. And so you're, again, looking at sort of two sets of factors, some that are behavioral and outward, and some that are more about how the person presents and what their demeanor is like. And it is a pretty pretty high standard. So you have to get a score of 30 or above to meet the criteria for psychopathy. And that is how we deem that. Like I said, it's not a diagnosis um, that we have a, a checklist in the DSM for. It's really based on the psychopathy checklist. And again, just because someone is really high in psychopathy, which I, I say this quite often, the probably the most psychopathic person I ever worked with really was only about a 27 or a 28. Even he didn't hit um, over 30. And was this a boss or was this a client? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This was a client, actually. Um, and terrifying. Like, it, it takes a lot for me not to be in a room with someone. <laughs> and this person, I did not want to be anywhere near um, again and they after weren't in the, the 30s. Assessment. They were like a 26 or 27. They they were lower. They were lower. And uh, they say once you get into the 30s, like all bets are off, right? I mean, sure, sure. You never know what could happen. Death, you know, they just, they do what they want, kind of. Is well, that right? I mean. It's a, it's a good question that you even jokingly ask, like, is this a boss or is this a client? Because not everyone uses their psychopathy to go on to be someone who acts out violently or even, you know, what we think of when we think of serial killers. You have people that can use this to be extremely successful in whatever their business is. And, you know, I'm sure we've all kind of heard of like how many politicians, how many CEOs likely could meet that criteria. Um, and there's something to that. They've just channeled it in a certain direction that is just to get their needs met. And they have no problem stepping on someone else to do that. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to think that, um, Fortune 500 companies look for antisocial traits in their executives. And that probably sounds horrific to many listeners, but when you think about it, people with that particular constellation of factors that Dr. Shadow was referring to will take chances that other people won't take. You know, if you or I, I mean, I don't know, I won't speak for you, but like I, if I was in a position of I've got to invest $2 billion correctly um, in order to make a profit and keep this company going and make sure my promotions happen. But if I personally knew that that $2 billion represented the retirement funds of hundreds of thousands of elderly people in the U.S., I would be frozen. I, I really would. I would be frozen in making a decision like that. So it takes a certain level of dispassionateness to be able to make those kind of decisions. And who knows? Maybe... You know, um, there is research being done. Maybe there's a biological imperative that that um, ASPD constellations, uh, even at their low percentage within our general population, uh, serve a purpose that keeps us moving forward. You know, we have, like Shalu was saying, who wants to be a politician in today's um, environment, right? I mean, unless you're a little bit of a narcissist and a little bit of a sociopath, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of what it takes, right? Unless you're clocking over 20, it's like, what's the point? Yeah. You know, if, <laughs> right? If you're clocking over 30, you probably could be president, but we won't, you know, get into all that. So the, um, so this, so 
Is it true that it's a scale? Psychopathy is a scale and it's like zero to 40 and we're all on it, but it's when you get in the higher numbers. Is that true? Uh, I'm trying to think of like specific, uh, one specific item on there that I could say that we, maybe one of us would fall on. Um, you know, looking at, there does take into account uh, some historical behaviors on there. So like juvenile delinquency, um, there are a lot of different reasons why some of us could have done stupid things when our brains weren't fully developed, right? So it, it's when you start getting multiple items on that scale in conjunction with each other that it starts painting a picture of what that means and how you might act or how you might want to present to somebody to get your needs met, whether that's manip manipulative um, or if it's completely disregarding someone else's emotions or needs or wants in life. So I would say, you know, there are probably some people that can score on some of those items. And that's why we have such a high standard. We're not going to deem them a psychopath because they have some of those traits. I'd also want to add in that there's a really good theory that starts off. Um, I mean, I'm not a psychodynamic therapist 100%, but I, you know, I, I pull from it when it's necessary. And there's some really fascinating research that talks about sort of our innate defense mechanisms as human beings is that when we are under duress or when we are not functioning at our best, that we will tend to react in ways that are reminiscent or have flavors of personality disorders. So someone under duress who's fully functioning and has great interpersonal relationships, but become under duress, their defense mechanism might be to act out in a way that comes across as very histrionic or very paranoid, or very um, borderline, or very antisocial. But it's not because they are that. It's because it's sort of reflective of how they have constructed their defense mechanisms in their early developmental periods. That makes sense. And so with the hair test, if what I remember, and I, I you know, there's like 20, question, 20 questions, and it covers like being glib, or deceitfulness, or... And most people are going to score a zero, right? And then you can score, is it a one or a two? And if you keep racking up the twos, that's when it, you know, and that shows like you don't care. You can lie at the drop of a hat. You can, you, you know, you no know empathy. Is that how that works? Well, and the traits, like let's take glibness, needs to be present among many different environments that you're in. So it would be present at home. It would be present at work. It would be present you know, at school, what have you. The other thing is that whoever the evaluator is has to also consider collateral data. So you are going through um, official police reports and any documentation that you have maybe of prior mental health treatment. And if you think it's pertinent, possibly interviewing friends and family or people close to this person so you can get an idea of this from more than just the person themselves. I think you don't even need to interview the person. They can refuse. And as long as you have enough collateral data, you can go ahead and score it. And I had heard one of you talk about how there was a doctor who was studying psychopathy. And I'd read this article and he found out like, oh my gosh, this is me. Can you guys talk about that? Yeah, Dr. James Fallon, not Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Amazing, James. Just an amazing story. Yes, an amazing story. But he was a neuroscientist, 
studying psychopaths, specifically the brains of psychopaths. And as he tells the story, he, of course, had his his control group against his psychopath brain scan group, and some of the scans got mixed up. So he and his, and of course, there's not names on there, right? There's just numbers. And Dr. Fallon had used himself and some of his family members to actually be part of the control group because they would agree to get their brain scanned for fun. And when they started looking back at the numbers and who they went back to and identified, they actually determined that he and I believe some of his family members um, had some of the brain mapping that we see in psychopaths. And so he actually did a little bit more exploration with his family and found that they also um, carried the genetic marker. But he talks about like, okay, like looking back on this, I can see how maybe I wasn't the most sensitive, empathetic husband to my wife when she talked about things she would deeply cared about. But then also, wouldn't he like dare his friends to go do like really thrill-seeking, dangerous things when he was younger? Yeah. I mean, as he started sort of reviewing his life up until that point, you know, kind of looking at where there had been problematic times, he had a really strong upbringing himself, like a real strong family unit, you know, a lot of um, emphasis on what was right and moral and ethical, you know, just laying some really good groundwork. But he was the impulsive one in the family and he would do impulsive things. He would be the kid that was like mischievous, but to an nth degree. And then beyond that, it wasn't just that he did it, is that he would entice his friends. Like, let's, I don't know if it was like diving off a quarry that was really dangerous. Like he was in, not that he was trying to hurt them, but because, you know, that region of his brain just wasn't firing for him to like lay out what the potential consequences and then have an emotional understanding of what would happen if those consequences were to bear out. Fascinating story. Really, really fascinating it kind of segues a little bit into talking about someone who'd commit these crimes, these, you know, Long Island serial killer crimes, you know, cause there's that whole, that fear factor. Cause you know, like you were talking about Dr. Scott, you know, like I have to invest $2 billion and not lose, you know, the Topeka school districts funds that they're investing with me. Right. I would lose my mind but they don't have that fear, right? I mean, can you talk about some of that wiring and how they're able to exist without breaking down? Because I can't imagine trying to keep those things together. How does that work? Well, I think psychopathy is just one small ingredient in probably the stew that you would have to have when you're looking at someone who is engaging in serial sexual killings, essentially. So it's been really interesting. And, and, you know, Scott had mentioned earlier how we, we obviously try to stay in our lane in terms of the research that we do and, and the information we put out in our podcast. But we also, it's cool because we get to explore other areas and topics that we wouldn't necessarily be experts in or come across every day. And with that, we have discovered so many different intricacies to especially looking at psychopathy and how that plays out for folks who aren't at the level of, you know, committing murders. But one of those is what is called the dark triad. And this has been widely studied. And this is looking at the combination of psychopathy and narcissism and this concept of Machiavellianism. So 
This is, think of your classic like con man. Violence doesn't necessarily have to be involved in this particular mixture, but you have what we've talked about with the core of psychopathy also paired with narcissism. So this really unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They need to seek too much attention. They want people to admire them. But also it comes with that lack of ability to understand or care about the feelings of other people. And then you have Machiavellianism, which is that personality trait that denotes cunningness and the ability to be manipulative and to just kind of by whatever means necessary, I'm going to get what I want. So that kind of feels like, okay, maybe that's scooting us a little bit closer to what we see with offenders who kill. But still the missing piece here and with researchers are pretty united on the fact that most serial killings at the core have a sexual component to them, right? So that then puts us into what Scott and I uncovered. It doesn't just stop at deadly triad, or I'm sorry, dark triad. There's a dark tetrad. So if you take psychopathy plus narcissism plus Machiavellianism plus sadism, you have a whole other group of people. And we found, we uncovered this when we were researching online trolls, which, I mean, who knew that they would be kind of above and beyond the con person. But if you think about it, this this added extra ingredient of sadism, which is the tendency to derive pleasure from inflicting pain, suffering, or humiliation on others, it kind of fits, right? Like, okay, these people are really, really brave behind their keyboards. But I think it's interesting if you look at a serial killer, perhaps, who is making phone calls to a victim's sister, right? Akin to trolling and inflicting psychological trauma and pain on someone from afar, it starts to take shape, at least at least for me when I've conceptualized this. Um, I think whenever you have evidence that points to the fact that the killer may have kept their victim alive for a period of time, also indicating a sadistic nature to inflict yeah. psychological pain and torment. That also feels like something that fits here. So we kind of have these building blocks that get rarer and rarer of combinations that dovetails to the rarity of a serial sexual offender um, that ends in murder. And then I think probably the last cherry on top, if you will, of that would be sexual sadism. Because all sadism doesn't have to be sexual, um, but when it's sexual sadism, that's going to be your last key ingredient. So before you throw in the sadism and the sexual sadism, you've got the makings of a good CEO, potentially. You know, you've got that like lack of fear. Mm -hmm. They're they're ruthless. They'll do what it takes. And then you start getting into those other mixtures and then you get people end up dead. It's also, I want to add one, one thing to this um, before we move on about um, kind of reflecting back on Dr. Fallon's work and his discoveries is that everything that we're talking about in the chemical makeup of the brain, as well as the brain structures, the different gene expression is that if you think of that as a tender box, that tender box needs a match. And many times, and we'll even see this in, in a very different sense, like there are people who may have a genetic predisposition to something on the psychotic spectrum or on the bipolar spectrum. But if they never live a high stress life or if they don't have a traumatic event, they may not fully express all the symptomology of those 
particular uh, diagnoses. And the same thing can can be said of what we're talking about when it comes to these psychopathy traits. I often use the example of we absolutely can have empathy and compassion for the child that is sexually abused, that is physically abused by parents, that is a victim of neglect, a victim of a completely broken home, then exposed to sexual deviance as a young child. We can look at, we can just feel so much compassion for that poor kid and think you never, never had a chance. And then when that child becomes Richard Ramirez, right, you have an understanding that there was like Shiloh said, there's a whole stew. And then it's, when does that stew get stirred? When does somebody light the gas on the burner and it turns into something really malignant and toxic and deadly? And that's, I think, something that should always be in the forefront of people's thoughts about how these things happen is that, yeah, you know, the, 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 the bits and pieces may be there in our genetic makeup, but they may never express. And, you know, like I, we were even talking about the the prison populations, the an amount of individuals, male individuals in state prisons who are there because of intimate partner violence, you would be shocked to hear how many of them have had head injuries. Because anytime we have injuries up here to the prefrontal cortex, which controls our, in, our intellectual, um, I mean, our executive functioning and is acts as an inhibitor to violent responses. Again, we're just looking at all these different factors that can play into how someone expresses and gets to the point where they are acting out in this way. And when it comes to sadism, again, to think of if you have a deficit in the structure of your psyche, I mean, well, not, the structure of your brain or the chemical makeup of your brain, if there's a deficit to where you and I'll be maudlin when I say this, but if you can't derive pleasure from looking at like a gorgeous sunset or, you know, looking at a fantastic meal, if there's a deficit, if there's not the chemical, if there's not the dopamine and the serotonin like getting flushed during those experiences, what does turn on those? And it has to be something that's really on the high end of the scale, which usually ends up being harm to someone else. So in some ways, these people that perpetrate this level of crimes may very well be seeking stimulation on a part of their brain that just does not have much of a reactive platform. Yeah, it just makes you think like, wow, you know, that whole thing, like you don't know what someone's dealing with. So maybe give them grace and kindness and they don't turn into a psychopath. That's a lot of pressure on us. But it is. It is. I was just going to say, I remember, you know, over the past 20 years after Columbine, you know, first of all, there was like this narrative that was being pushed about how bullied those two perpetrators were, which doesn't hold up today. There was a whole other set of factors. But one of the stupidest things that we ever did as a community, and I don't mean psychologists, I, I mean, like as a as a world community, is that we started putting pressure on our children to be nicer to each other. And suddenly we're, we're implying that the responsibility is, is on our kids when that's, that's really twisting the message to put that level of responsibility. Yes. Teach your children to be kind and compassionate and understanding, but also your kids have instincts. And if their instincts are telling them that person is not somebody I should be hanging out with, then they should be following that instinct. They shouldn't be pushing themselves to go and, you know, sit with them when it may not be the safest thing to do that. That's a good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. 
That's it for this episode of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer. A huge thank you to Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from L.A. Not So Confidential. You can find the second half of our conversation in the episode immediately following this one. In it, we talk about the incarceration process, the insanity defense, paraphilia and criminals, and so much more. Last, if you're enjoying these episodes, please take a moment to leave a review and a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It helps bring the case to more people and allows us to continue our coverage more thoroughly. And thank you. This has been a Mopac Audio production. I am your host, Chris Moss. Our senior producer is Shannon McGarvey. Our executive producers are Jonathan Beal and Jonathan Nowazarden, and music by Blake Maples. The views, speculation, conjecture, and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, and the hosts. They do not reflect or represent the policy or views held by Mopac Audio LLC or any broadcaster of this podcast. Any and all suspects discussed on this podcast are considered innocent until guilt is established in a court of law and any allegations, speculation, opinion, or conjecture about any suspect is subject to such presumption of innocence.